0: Minus fifteen.
1: Respect all, fear none.
0: Into the upper deck.
1: Intensity is not a perfume. Hello, Utah Street. Five, four, three,
0: two, one. From inside the Masson Newsroom, it is. The Masson All-Access Podcast. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. We're going to have Bob Phelan of the On the Verge podcast on later in this episode. But, Brendan, I've had my coffee. We just did a podcast three days ago. No, not three that days ago. That is untrue. Five days ago, like last Thursday. Yeah. But uh, we had to hop on because uh, there's been some chatter around baseball, and in particular the Orioles. And uh, I'm ready to to fight some fights. Yeah. I'm ready to... Uh, to dive into this thing oh at first. we've
1: got some takes we've
0: got some takes we've got we've we're ready ready to go yeah i'm i don't rounds. know i don't know if this energy is going to last for our softball game
1: i sure hope so there's the obligatory softball game reference uh, i mean it is the most anticipated softball game of the season i mean
0: it's been three weeks since we've supposed to have played each exactly. other in
1: softball the fans are waiting to hear what happened and uh yeah i mean i've been racking up
0: impressive stats on my own right. You know, a lot of infield singles um, got doubled off the other day, but we won't talk about that. Uh, But I expect to face my biggest challenge tonight when I face your team. I know you don't pitch, but... I don't. uh, The results of this game will determine uh, podcast superiority, of course.
1: Absolutely. And there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Podcast superiority. You just bought some new white cleats. I did. I did indeed. It's uh, after last week's debacle... In the rain, yes. I said I should probably not be wearing sneakers for this activity, so I got some cleats.
0: I am sticking with sneakers. I'm definitely gonna roll my ankle or something. As
1: it's long as we be don't better. have another two broken wrists incident, anything we're, even we're if looking it's just good. one broken wrist, anything anything sh- is better. Short of two broken wrists is 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 uh, is
0: better. Two broken ankles says producer Bobby Blanco. That's that's highly possible. It would have to be you run you break one and then you try you like put the other foot down. I'm trying not to envision it. In desperation, and then you break the other. <laughs> I mean, uh, how would you use crutches? The crutches, would you'd would have to go one at a time. They'd have to be your I new legs. I guess. I think a wheelchair would probably I think be
1: That's a, probably, I, I think we're missing way. the obvious answer here. Yeah,
0: and that'd probably be a wheelchair. All right, uh, Brendan, shall we dive right into this thing? <sighs> Let's we're, do it. We're going to be talking about pitching prospects in particular, because that has been the bulk of the chatter around the Orioles as of late. And we know the the on-the-field product obviously is not great right now. 18 straight losses for the Orioles. We're not going to be debating the 26-man roster per se. We're not going to be debating how good the pitching is at the major league level because right now it is not good. We're going to be talking about the future of this organization and how much confidence we still have in the Orioles' ability to see through this rebuild.
1: Yeah, a lot of media has been, at least over the last week or so during this Orioles losing streak that has now gone up to 18 games, has decided to jump on the bandwagon that because the team at the major league level is underperforming, the rebuild as a whole is in trouble. And we disagree with that. We have talked at length about where we think this rebuild is, but it is not in the dire state at least in our opinion not in the dire state that a lot of people are making it out to be at this point
0: yeah uh before we get into the specifics of the pitching though i do want to address there was an article this morning by ken rosenthal in the athletic and it just seems like a lot of national writers are jumping on the bandwagon of criticizing the orioles at this point and the Conception of the article is basically the idea that well, in 1988 when the Orioles started out the season 0 and 21, they were actually trying, and that's more not- that's more admirable than what the Orioles are doing right now, which is to ignore the fact that the players on the field and the coaches and the manager are are actually trying. I mean, that is ignoring the fact that the the people that are actually playing the game at or and are coming to the ballpark on a day in day out basis are actually trying. I get what he's trying to say, the idea that, you know, they're not investing enough resources in their major league roster to show that they're competing at this point. But here's the thing. When we talk about the difference in financial, uh, you know, aspects to the game and to specific teams, and we talk about why the Orioles are at a disadvantage because they are a smaller market team as compared to some of the teams in their division in Boston and New York... It's not that the Orioles don't have the ability to spend when they are good, because they have shown that they are willing to spend. As Michael I said in the dugout on Friday, they've done it almost to a fault, i.e., the Chris Davis contract, i.e., spending too much money on Mark Trumbo, i.e., spending money on Alex Cobb, $57 million, and too much on Andrew Kashner. I think it was about 30 million for Andrew Kashner, because they were trying to be good. When you have a fake salary cap like they do where they have the, you know, luxury tax threshold and a lot of teams don't want to go over it. The Orioles, when they are good, we believe will spend close to that luxury tax threshold. The problem is the Yankees and the Red Sox, even when they are not good, they can still spend a ton of money. They don't worry about too much about getting hampered with bad contracts. The Yankees take on bad contracts. They take on the Giancarlo stand. I know he's a good player, but that's a massive contract. The Orioles aren't in a team that's in a position to take on a massive contract. And what that means is the Orioles, for the past several years, in addition to dealing with a down-farm system and no international presence and very little talent at the upper levels of the minor leagues to be able to compete in the near term, have also been dealing with the fact that they have have had the massive Chris Davis contract on their books. They had a massive Andrew Kashner contract on their books. Massive Alex Cobb contract on on their books at a time when they're not competing. So they have to swallow that money as well and that's The difference between the Yankees and the Red Sox is they're more able to swallow those when they are not competing. The Orioles are not. They have to save up their resources so that they can use all of them when they are good again. They have to be cheap
1: now so that they can spend later. And you mentioned the Yankees and Red Sox, and they fall into their own category of not being cyclical. They have enough money at their disposal to any year, like you mentioned, even if they do not have a roster that is built to compete at that point, they will go spend money so that they have at least a competitive roster. Yeah. When the Yankees were aging a little bit in the mid-2010s and they were in the beginning of their rebuild, they had guys like Aaron Judge that were just coming up. Gary Sanchez was just coming up. That rebuild took about a year. Because along with the Aaron Judges and Gary Sanchez's that were just coming up, they were able to spend money and get good players immediately. So a team like the Yankees is able to super speed that rebuild. Yes. But how quickly we forget that the Orioles won the most games in the American League from 2012 to 2016, and we've seen other teams do this exact thing... In years past, we've seen the Chicago Cubs do it. They are now on the downswing after winning a World Series a few years ago. And we saw the Houston Astros do it. They had, what, three or four straight seasons of winning 50 games, 55 games. Now they're in a little bit of that downward after winning the World Series. A Ah. few of those, a little bit. They're starting it. Because they're going to lose probably like guys like Carlos Correa, yeah. they're going to have a hard time keeping that already core together. George Springer is already yeah. gone. Carlos Correa is probably going to leave. Verlander, Verlander, that
0: contract that now looks bad.
1: Right, they are on a bit of the downward there. So for teams like the Cubs and Astros, this is the natural progression. Yeah, you are going through that cycle of you were really bad for a little while, you won a bunch of games, you won the World Series. That's the goal, and now you are on the downward side of that. But the thing is, if you want to make a case for changing the rules of baseball, if you want a salary floor, if you want a salary cap, fine. That's its own separate argument. But given how the game works at this point, this is far and away the most effective way to get top prospects in the draft and the most effective way to get top prospects through trades. And until the rules are changed, if they are, this is the best way to do it. And it can't be overstated that there are nuances with
0: all of these rebuilds that occur. When you talk about the Red Sox... You know, they have the down year that they had last year and they get the number four overall pick. They still had, when Chaim Bloom accepted that job, they still had a lot of great players in-house. They still had Mookie bets. The Nationals are currently going through a rebuild. They still have Juan Soto. And they still have some top prospects. When the when Mike Elias accepted the job in Baltimore, he didn't have that. The best prospect he had in-house was Yusniel Diaz, and he had no pipeline. He had absolutely no international presence. That sets them at least a decade back. They were already behind in terms of technology. So there are nuances to all of these things. It's, it's difficult to, a lot of people just look at other teams' rebuilds and say, well, why aren't we doing that? I've seen some comments, why are, are we doing, you know, Tampa Bay has a small market. Why can't the Orioles just do that? Well, Tampa Bay has been ahead of the curve for two decades now. The Orioles have not. Yeah, you
1: can make a case why doesn't every other team in baseball do what Tampa Bay do, is doing, yeah, and have not a, just the Orioles. Right, and have a bottom of the... It's, yeah. The thing is that Tampa Bay is elite at finding
0: and developing uh, talent. Exactly. And that's what the Orioles are trying to do, but that's not what they were trying to do under Dan Duquette. They were trying to win games, and they were okay with spending at the time being. Which, again, they did. Yeah, which the they most did. most
1: wins in the American League from 2012 to 2016.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and also... Even the, the, like we said with the Yankees, seeing more comparisons with like the Yankees and the Dodgers,
1: they are the Yankees and
0: the Dodgers for a reason. They, they are have, spending
1: over two hundred million. They at have this point.
0: Un, endless money. The, the thing is, they can spend up until the the luxury tax every single year. The Orioles can do that a few years, and then they have to cut back. That's that's the deal. That's what the the market size difference is. And like you said, Brendan, if you want to talk about a salary floor or anything like that, fine. But it has to also start with being able to getting these teams to share revenue. If you want them to, if you don't want them to, fine, but that's a different discussion. And it's tough to criticize the teams that are at the bottom when they're not getting any of the revenue that the teams are at the top that the teams at the top are getting.
1: And I think we would both argue, obviously this is a few years down the line, but if the Orioles in a few years are able to be competitive in the playoffs and make a World Series push, people are going to really quickly forget about the four years that the Orioles were tanking. Everybody's going to say it was worth it. Yes. So if this works out, if the grand scheme that Mike Elias has set the Orioles on the path of for the last few years ends up getting them a World Series, everybody's going to say the tanking was worth it. Exactly. And you look at the first
0: several years in the turn of the century, and really since the Orioles last made the playoffs in the 90s, that that long playoff drought that they had between, what, 97 and 2012, the Orioles, guess what? The Orioles were trying then, and it didn't work. And they were stuck in the same, they didn't have the same bottom-out 100-loss season in a row type thing, but they were trying, they were spending money, and it didn't work. And that, how is that any better than what they're going through now? Marginally. Marginally. And there was no hope then. That's the thing. They were slightly better on the major league team, on the major league field, day in and day out. But they didn't have the f- the hope in the future and the number two prospect, uh, at number one prospect, number two farm system.
1: And again, this could be an, an entire new podcast in terms of, you know, the fundamentals of a rebuild and what the correct way to do it is. But I think you and I would both agree that we would rather have the Orioles win 55 games this year, get the number one overall pick and continue to build that farm system until it's probably the number one farm system in all of baseball, then sign a few middling free agents, win 70 games, get the seventh pick in the draft, and not really do anything with it. Yeah. Well, you talked
0: about the overall ability of the Orioles to see this thing through. And if it... if. It comes to fruition if Mike Elias's plan actually works that we might be able to forget about these years much more easily than if it doesn't. And the success of this plan hinges, of course, on the prospects. And there has been a lot of talk about the pitching prospects. We've talked about this on a previous podcast, the struggles that we've seen at the AAA level and at the big league level, from some of the Orioles pitching prospects and in particular it comes down to Keegan Aiken, Alexander Wells, Zach Lowther and the biggest one in Dean Kramer. Four guys that we thought we would see something from this year and we were just hoping to see flashes from and we haven't seen anything from them
1: and fairly that is a concern. Yes it is a concern but again these guys are still young they are still prospects. Corbin Burns, his first year in the majors, was not a good pitcher. And now Corbin Burns is a Cy Young. It takes time to develop some of these guys. But the thing is, Paul, you can have those concerns about Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, but you're not looking at them as you need to go be the number one in the Orioles pitching rotation for the next five years. Right, They've got those guys. Right. They do. Yeah, and we're,
0: we're going to talk about them in a bit. But the 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 four struggles they've had a 790 combined era uh and they have also all struggled at triple a the the lowest of the eras at triple a i believe is in the fours and that belongs to alexander wells keegan aiken of course has shown that he is not at least ready right now to be a major league starter same with dean kramer who is having it just a nightmarish season alexander wells and zach lowther maybe eventually down the line, but they're not having the seasons that the Orioles hoped they would have. All four of those guys are between 24 and 26 years old at this point. And while it is nice, it would be very nice to see them flash at this point. It's not absolutely critical. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be good pitchers down the line. And like you said, Brendan, this is the second tier of pitching prospects. And the first tier is obviously Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall.
1: Right. It's definitely disappointing to see these four struggle because we were hoping that we would see flashes at this point, like you mentioned, but like you said, they are not being asked to be the number one or number two pitchers in this rotation. You really only need one of them in your rotation, one or two of them going forward, hopefully, and they are still on the younger side. They're still from 24 to 26, which is around the time that once they are in the major leagues, you are hoping that you will see enough from them to stick in the major leagues. So I'm not hitting the panic button just yet on really any of these guys. If two or three years from now, we don't see any of them flash, I think at that point it's pretty obviously time to move on. But over the next year or two, I'm still really not going to slam the panic button Because you're just hoping to see flashes, and you're hoping to see development. And if there's still positive development throughout the years, you're fine with that from this mid-tier of pitchers.
0: Also, I just want to say real quick, as we are live, of course, on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, and be sure to comment along if you're watching as well. But I saw one comment from Rick saying, if it works, it works. What if it doesn't? Minor league prospects are a crapshoot. Here's the thing. If it doesn't work out, you still have a ridiculously low payroll, so you can go out and spend on free agents. Exactly. You can... if if you go the other path and try to spend your way out of this thing, and that doesn't work, guess what? You don't have the resources that you had before. You don't have the ability to spend your way out of it again. What are you going to do? Dig a deeper hole? That's why they were in the situation that they were in when Michael Elias took over.
1: Yeah, and if we're going to talk about
0: I'm jumping off,
1: if we're going to talk about a crapshoot, I would rather take my chances on some of the better prospects in baseball than Alex Cobb for ten million dollars a year. Right, Yeah, you know is like it, you, exactly. you choose where to take your chances i'd rather take my chances on prospects and like you said if those don't work out you still have the money to supplement the prospects that didn't work out right. with major league talent which is the plan all along
0: yeah the 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 downside of this not working out is way better than the downside of the other side not working out right um also, somebody bring up I was incorrect. Alexander Wells now has his ERA and Triple A down to three four two. That's so, development, and he's yeah, improving. He, he is improving. He's actually been. We didn't think he. We thought he was probably going to be the lowest of the four, maybe right. second lowest to to Keegan Incan of those four guys mentioned. But okay, let's talk about Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall. Here's the thing. Some people are talking about the Orioles' pitching depth being an issue, and they're kind of glossing over DL uh, Grayson Rodriguez and saying, "Yeah, well, Grayson Rodriguez is great." Yeah, Grayson Rodriguez is great. He's he's the number eight prospect in all of baseball. He's the number one pitching prospect, according to both Baseball America and MLB Pipeline. That's a great place to start. If Grayson Rodriguez, and I saw uh, that his uh, a scout, anonymous scout say in an article on The Athletic that his floor is a number two, number three starter. You know how many pitching prospects you can say that about at this point in their career?
1: That would be Not all of many. them. Oh, no, sorry, none of them. None of them.
0: I'm saying their floor is a number two yes, or number three. Yes. A lot of them, they say their floor is, one, not making the bigs, or two, being a, a long reliever. His floor being a number two, number three, that's incredibly high. And that means that, you know, the most likely, maybe not most likely, but a very likely outcome is he's a legitimate ace on a team.
1: That's a great place to start, and they, that cannot be ignored. Yeah, Grayson Rodriguez is the number one pitching prospect in all of baseball. He is the number eight prospect overall. DL Hall is the number seven left-handed pitching prospect in all of baseball, number 78 overall. And it's kind of funny to watch people, you know, look at the Orioles' pitching prospects as a whole and say, well, if you take out Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall, they don't have many promising pitching prospects. You can't just take out Grayson Rodriguez and DL. You can't just look aside those two. They are, the Orioles are one of the few teams in Major League Baseball with two pitching prospects in the top 100. I believe the Marlins are the only team in baseball with more than that. You can't just say, well, outside of their top two pitchers, they, the pitching prospects don't look great because if the Orioles in a few years end up with two homegrown pitchers that are their hopefully their ace and their number two or number three starter, that's great. Because hopefully you can get John Means, who's also homegrown, to continue to stick in that rotation for a few years. And then you can supplement that with maybe a mid-tier guy who's there or just two free agents or two trades or whatever it needs to be. Two or three guys in the starting rotation that are homegrown pitching prospects is really good. And you could make a case that
0: getting the ace and a solid number two, number three is the hardest part. Absolutely. That's why teams spend ridiculously... Uh, spend a ridiculous number of high-level prospects at the deadline to go get a Max Scherzer <laughs> or a pitcher of that caliber because getting the ace is the hardest part. It's incredibly hard to do that. And the Orioles have that top-end talent. I mean, yeah, Brendan, that's like saying that, uh, you know, you take out 2012, 2014, 2016, the Orioles really haven't done much in the past, you know, since the 97, Like that, which I've seen before. It's like, you can't just take out the good years and say it's
1: bad. Look, yeah, I mean, if look, if you take... Garrett Cole and Jamison Tyone out of the Yankees' pitching rotation, it's not all that good.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can not That's take, not
1: how this works. You can't take that out. Um,
0: so, I mean, that's a great place to start when you're talking about that. But I understand D.L. Hall kept to seven starts this year. He's had injuries. And obviously, Grayson Rodriguez is still young. Still uh, a year away from the big leagues about. So, I understand the idea that pitchers can get hurt. You need depth. Here's the thing. The Orioles are betting on volume. Mike Bauman, Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, Kyle Bradish, Kevin Smith, Drew Rom, Carter Baumler, uh, Carlos Tavera, Cody Sedlock, Blaine Knight, Bruce Zimmerman, Garrett Stallings, Kyle Brinovich. All those guys are prospects in the Orioles' farm system. You cannot ignore the sheer volume that the Orioles have, in addition to Tyler Wells, who's already in the bullpen, Marcus Deplan, who's looked good, Tanner Scott, Dylan Tate, as potential relievers on this team, who are all young, who are all inexpensive, who could be here for years to come. You cannot ignore the sheer volume. And they may not have, outside of of Rodriguez and Hall, we can debate the upside of a Mike Bauman, the upside of a Kyle Bradish or a Kevin Smith. But you can't ignore the fact that the Orioles have gotten a ton of pitching prospects And the more that you have, the more likely it is that you're going to hit on one or two or three
1: of these guys. So, for a second, I want to look at a hypothetical future Orioles starting pitching rotation. Let's say two years from now. Yeah, Is it fair to assume that Grayson Rodriguez will be in that rotation? I'd say uh, so.
0: Obviously, assuming that, you know... Injuries are always a concern. Yes. Get that.
1: But if everything goes to plan, yes. In this hypothetical, I'm going to assume that we've got Grayson Rodriguez in the rotation, that D.L. Hall is able to stay healthy, and we've got D.L. Hall in the rotation, and I think John Means has a chance to stick around for two or three years. Yeah. So let's say in this hypothetical that we've got three pitchers right there in John Means, Grayson Rodriguez, and D.L. Hall. Paul, I'll ask you this. In your opinion... What are the odds that one of <laughs> Kyle Bradish, Mike Bauman, Kevin Smith, Zach Lowther, Alexander Wells, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken, Drew Rahm, Carter Baumler, or Garrett Stallings yeah, yeah. becomes a solid piece of that rotation? Maybe even a number four. But what are the odds of that happening? It's solid because there, there are so many. Right. Because there's approximately a million of them that yes. you think can potentially be in the rotation. Yeah. So if one of those guys joins the Orioles' starting pitching rotation in two or three years. That is four homegrown pitching prospects that you have developed throughout your system that are in your rotation, and I don't think it is a wild exaggeration to assume that the Orioles will add one singular free agent or, tr- or starting pitching or trade through a starting pitcher goodness, English is hard sometimes. Yeah. I don't think it's wild to assume that they will add one other guy to that starting pitching rotation, whether it is through a trade or free agency. Right, yeah. there are. That's a, that's a starting five. Exactly. I mean, y- you talk about
0: just the sheer volume of these guys. Let's say there's a 10% chance that any one of these guys hits. Well, the more guys that you have, obviously, 10% is just a number. I'm just throwing it out there. I don't know where, what you would say 10% who would be 10%, maybe a guy like Drew Rahm, there's a 10% chance that Drew Rahm hits. Well, guess what? If there's a 10% chance Carter Baumler hits, now you've got a 19% chance that one of the two guys hits. So, and the more the guys that you stack, the higher that percent chance goes that just one of them will work out. So that is where the Orioles are placing their bets is on the volume here because they have had to. And then when you talk about supplementing guys, Brendan, there are, there are several ways when it comes to building a major league pitching staff, there are several ways to skin a cat. I hate that expression. I don't even like cats. I don't know who came up with that cat. That cat.
1: Who came up with that cat? Whose cat
0: is it? That's my question. And uh. why you want to do that to that cat? I don't even like cats. I don't want to do that. But the point being, Brendan, there are multiple ways to go about it. You can go one or two. Of, Two ways, and everything in the middle. I'll use two extremes. The two best ERAs pitching staffs in all of Major League Baseball in 2021, the LA Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants. The Dodgers have built almost their entire pitching staff off of guys that they have drafted or signed as amateurs, amateur free agents and developed. 58% of the innings pitched this year by the league-leading LA Dodgers pitching staff have come from guys that they have signed and uh, as inter- amateur free agents, not in free agency, as amateur international free agents, or drafted and brought up through their system. That includes Clayton Kershaw, Walker Bueller, Julio Rios, Kenley Jansen, Tony Gonsolin, Dustin May. But they have also gone out and supplemented their starting rotation in particular, and even their bullpen, with Max Scherzer, the guy with the initials TB that we're not going to mention, not Tom Brady. Uh, the... David Price, Joe Kelly. It still takes more to get over the hump. Then you look at the other team, the San Francisco Giants, who are on the t- complete opposite end of the spectrum, and they are right behind the Dodgers in Team ERA this season. Only 22% of the innings pitched this year have come from guys that they have drafted or signed as amateur free agents, the, compared to 58% with the Dodgers. This is just some crude math that I did uh, before the show. And that the guys that are in-house, that they brought up through their own system, are not the top-end guys. The top-end guys are guys that they signed in free agency or traded for, includes Kevin Gosman, sorry, Anthony DiSclefani, Alex Wood, Johnny Cueto. That's the bulk of their positive innings that they make. So you can go, you can be the Dodgers and invest... Well, Not any team can be the Dodgers. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. You can go that route and invest like the Milwaukee Brewers, invest all your resources in the draft draft pitchers, high draft them often trade for pitchers as much as possible. When they are in the minors sign as many as you can in the international free agent market and try to build your staff that way. Or you can go the giants route, which is build your hitters and trade for pitchers and sign pitchers. So the idea that you need to build your entire staff from your own minor league system is ridiculous, and it's a fallacy. The Dodgers have the best ERA in baseball, fifty-eight, and they're on the high end. 58% comes from drafted and player signed as international free agents. That's a high percentage, and guess what? They still need to make up 42% in that instance, so... A lot of pitching is going to have to come from outside of the organization, regardless of how much they invest at this point in pitching prospects.
1: Yeah. And the important thing to note there with the Giants, Mike Elias said that the goal of the Orioles is that they're going to draft and develop hitting, and then they're going to go get pitching when they need it. Yeah, The Giants right now, yes, they traded for Chris Bryant, but their lineup at this point is really centered around Buster Posey and Brandon Crawford two guys who have been in San Francisco seemingly forever, but they are the key pieces in that Giants lineup. And like I said, the Mike Elias strategy is clear. You draft hitters early, and you get the pitching when you need it. I want to look at another rebuild that I've already mentioned before on this podcast, and that's the 2012 Houston Astros. When you looked at their top prospects, their three top guys in 2012 were first baseman John Singleton, who didn't pan out, shortstop Carlos Correa, and outfielder George Springer. Those were the top three prospects in Houston's system at that point. They did have Lance McCullers as their number six prospect, but he was not as highly ranked as somebody like Grayson Rodriguez or D.L. Hall is in the Orioles system currently. Fast forward a little bit to 2017. The Astros, of course, win 101 games and they win the World Series. Their lineup is construction constructed of homegrown prospects Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, and George Springer. Their starting rotation did include two guys that they brought up. They had Dallas Keuchel, who was a pretty unheralded prospect who just kind of came out of nowhere and was good, and then Lance McCullers, who had been a top prospect, top five, top six prospect in the Astros system for a while. You can compare those two to, say, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, Hopefully those will be the two pitchers that the Orioles have and are at least contributing in that starting rotation, even if the other depth guys don't work out. But the 2017 Astros, the team that won the World Series, was built on that lineup, constructed of homegrown guys that were just doing damage in the middle of that lineup And they got the other pitchers when they needed it. They were able to go out and get Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole and Zach Greinke when they needed them because they weren't giving massive contracts to hitters in free agency because they had them on the roster already. They drafted them. They developed them. That was the way they went. And it seems like Mike Elias, having drafted all of these hitters really early on, is following a similar blueprint there and it worked out pretty well for the Houston Astros
0: and and another lesson to be learned there when it comes to those guys coming in Verlander Greinke uh those guys and and even Cole to a lesser extent had big contracts that they were taking on well Verlander and Greinke I think Cole was still pre-arbitration eligible at that point or he was ar- he was getting arbitration money yeah Garrett Cole
1: if- was not this Garrett Cole obviously but right when he was traded
0: before in Pittsburgh I I think
1: think, he, mm, I think he, I'm not sure. I'd have to check. But anyway, Zach Renke,
0: Justin Verlander, big time money that the Astros had to inherit. So, you know, you spend a little bit less in free agency allows you to take on big time money at the trade deadline. That's another lesson to be learned. And that's what that optionality of not spending a ton of money in free agency can do for you. Uh, But those were the three best pitchers on that Astros staff. Garrett Cole and Zach Renke... Uh, never won a World Series with them, but they were on the best Astro staff.
1: Yeah, Lance point. McCullers during a lot of those playoff runs was, was the fourth best, either player. injured or in the bullpen. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was not even a, a starter in, right. on those playoff teams. So there are there are ways to do it, and, and a lot of those trades, Brendan, that you mentioned, come from trading from the deepest farm system in baseball, which is what the Astros had, and it comes from building that up for years to come. And I know that there's been criticism of the Orioles' draft strategy. We don't have to get back into it. But the Orioles going with almost all hitters on the first couple days. I get it if you wanted them to see take some more pitchers on the first day or two of the draft. I get it. One, I'm glad they didn't take Kumar Rocker, who didn't sign, because the Mets didn't like something in his medicals. And who knows if the Orioles would have had the same problem with Kumar Rocker and then been stuck without a first round draft pick. But I'm just glad that they didn't have to do that because they didn't force a pick. But I'm also glad that the Orioles aren't forcing players into certain positions. They're not doing what the Angels did where they said, you know what? We need pitchers. Take 20 pitchers because that's forcing a pick. That's what bad organizations do. That's saying we have a position of need at the major league roster or at the upper levels of the minor league, so let's focus our draft strategy on that. That's not what you do with the MLB draft. It's what you do in the NBA draft, maybe, or the NFL. But you don't force a position of need in the draft. And the Orioles going with hitters in the first couple days shows that they were just trying to take the best player available and they're trying to mitigate the risk because pitchers are more likely to have devastating injuries in the first couple of years of their minor league careers than position players. So the Orioles, of course, wait. They trade for a guy like Garrett Stallings or Kyle Brinovich or Kevin Smith after they've shown that they can be healthy for a few years in the minors. And then they go out and trade for those guys. Because look at, look at what happened to the only pitcher that they drafted. The Orioles took one pitcher in 2020, Carter Baumler. I think he's still going to be very good. He had Tommy John surgery. That's the risk. That's the risk that you have, is Tommy John knocks a guy out for a year, and yes, some guys come back better than ever, but that is far from a guarantee at this point. So there are inherent risks to taking pitchers. The Orioles still took eight pitchers in the final 10 rounds. They
1: just waited longer because they wanted to mitigate their risk. And again, we can't stress enough, they already have two top 100 pitching prospects in the system, and one of them is the best pitching prospect in all of baseball in Grayson Rodriguez. You can make a case that the depth of the Orioles' pitching prospects is not maybe where you would like it, but some of these guys you still have to wait and see. Maybe we haven't seen the flashes this year with Mike Bauman and Zach Lowther and Dean Kramer, but they still have time. So if one of those guys from the mid-tier decides to you know really improve over the next few years and is able to become a number three number four starter in the Orioles rotation we would look at this pitching staff completely differently in a few years and one point that you noted there Paul that I want to talk about a little bit the Astros had the money in this rebuild when they traded for Justin Verlander and Zach Greinke because like you said they did not spend big money on free agent hitters right. because they didn't need to. They did not need to. They had Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, George yes. Springer in the middle of the lineup. You don't need to go sign an Anthony Rendon to you know, give him however many hundreds of millions of dollars to come in and be in the middle of your lineup because you have the guys already. Yeah, they signed like a Michael Brantley who was kind of injury prone at that point and he turned out to be a good piece of that lineup. But you didn't need superstars. No, one through nine was already loaded. (laughs) Exactly. So you had the cap space to say, okay, let's take on the contract of a Justin Verlander. Let's take on the contract of Zach Greinke. And the only way you're able to do that is if you aren't spending a ton of money on your lineup.
0: Yeah, and and especially with uh, even the Astros are a much bigger market than the Orioles. Right. Astros have much more flexibility to do something like that. And the Orioles saving money now... And probably going to be not splurging in free agency this offseason allows them to do that. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, obviously, like we said, it is a, a concern that those four guys that we mentioned have not taken a step up or shown much flashes yet to this point. There's still a month left, a month and a half left in this season. The AAA season extends longer than it usually does. I expect at least a few of them to flash. And we might even see a Mike Bauman make his big league debut in the final in September. Maybe we might see Kevin Smith come up, make his big league debut. There are other guys that we have not seen yet in Baltimore that could be making an impact over the next year and a half.
1: Right. And one quick point that I want to make, if you want to compare teams with smaller payrolls at this point, look at the Tampa Bay Rays. If you're going to argue about the Orioles pitching depth, The Rays currently have one pitcher in their starting rotation that they drafted and developed, and that's Shane McClanahan. Yes, they have other guys in the system like Luis Patino, who they traded for. Yes, Tyler Glass now is injured, but they traded for him as well. They have drafted guys like Brandon Lau. They have signed and developed Wander Franco. They drafted Kevin Kiermeyer. They traded for guys like Joey Wendell, Randy Rosarena, and Yandy Diaz when they were still not major league caliber players. They were still, you know, needed to be developed. Yeah. So they prioritized the hitting, and then they went and got the pitching where they needed to. Yeah, and also keep in mind, the Orioles are, unfortunately,
0: on a path to have the number one pick in next year's draft. I think Elijah Green's like the top prospect at this point, but anything can change. What if there was like a Jack Lighter, uh, a guy of that ilk, sitting out there, available for them to take with the number one overall pick in a year's time? They could they could take another great pitcher yeah. with the number one pick or number two pick in, in next year's draft, and then have Grayson Rodriguez, DL Hall, an ex great right handed pitcher from college. They could. So there are oh, the the Orioles' rebuild is not complete yet. the, the Michael Elias is not done acquiring talent Um, and this is a process and the Orioles are not yet there but the hope is that they will be
1: because again much to the chagrin of Ken Rosenthal as the rules currently stand this is the best way to get young prospects right and to hopefully have a window of opportunity to win in, you know, the four or five years after you began the rebuild. Yeah. This is the best way to get those guys. And then you got to develop them, of course, which uh,
0: the Orioles are working on as well. And I think we're going to see the fruits of that uh, come to bear over the next, you know, several months as well, because we we went down to Del Marva and we talked to Matt Blood, director of player development, who talked about the trip that he took. Carlos Tavera and some of the other highly drafted Orioles pitchers, highly drafted being, you know, using that liberally because they were taken in the 10th, 11th, 12th rounds, but took them on a trip to the Wake Forest Pitching Lab, a deal where they have, uh, you know, to take pitchers to, to show the biomechanics of how they're working, how their body is working. And in order to develop these guys, you have to introduce them to analytics and advanced metrics at a younger and younger age. And that's what the Orioles are trying to do. And they took over this, rebuild they and this organization they did not have those fixtures in place to develop these guys and I saw a lot of comments like well you're never going to be able to develop guys the Orioles haven't shown that they can develop guys like the Astros or like the Dodgers no they haven't yet but the hope is that their system in place of development is much better than it was three years ago under Dan Duquette when they weren't as concerned about developing they were more concerned about Let's sign the guys we need to. Let's supplement the core that we have, and let's win this thing.
1: Right, and obviously the player development side of things is the flip side of the coin because after you draft the high prospects, you still have to develop them. You still have to have them reach their potential at the major league level, but as you continue to add prospects into the system, you are not guaranteeing that you're going to get more guys that are quality major league players but you're stacking your deck
0: yes exactly oh have we gotten in enough fights yet today bren
1: uh yeah i want to address one comment on youtube it (laughs) says uh why do we keep using the astros blueprint the al east is a very different division again yes it is uh,
0: nuances to every rebuild
1: right but also uh the astros blueprint blueprint of winning 100 plus games for multiple seasons and some world series seems like a a decent blueprint
0: The fact that Michael Elias came from that organization makes a natural connection. But again, no, I get the point. Nuances to every rebuild. Right. It's going to be a more uphill battle for the Orioles than it was for the Astros because, like we said, Yankees, Red Sox, always going to be there. Rays are always going to be there. Yankees and Red Sox can spend with the rest of them. Blue Jays already have one of the best young cores in baseball. It's going to be hard. Guess what? Nobody cares. Nobody likes to hear your sob story. You know the Orioles and and Mike Elias tries not to play that fiddle too much because that's just what he has to deal with. He took the job knowing that it's maybe the best division year in and year out in baseball, or it's one of them. So you know it, the Orioles are just going to have to play through it. They're just going to have to be good that's in the a,
1: division you're in. That
0: you're just going to have to be good in a team of re, in a, in a division of really good teams. So that's that's the hope. All right, uh, let's get to the interview with Bob Phelan of On The Verge. Of course, if you don't follow On The Verge. What are you doing? You should definitely follow them and check out the coverage that they have. It's amazing. Every single night I'm seeing their tweets and it's, I I check the box scores and they kind of like compress and keep the best of the box scores, the top prospects, how they're doing in each level of the Orioles farm system. Uh, it's really nice and also a comfort to see when you're seeing watching the Orioles game and they're losing. You can check Twitter and see on The Verge and see, well, Colton Couser went two for three <laughs> and yeah, helps. Kevin Smith had five shutout innings.
1: And yeah, helps us a ton. It and does. They are fantastic with keeping up with yes. these Orioles prospects. Absolutely. So here's our interview with Bob Phelan.
0: Now we're joined on the Mass in All Access podcast by Bob Phelan, who is the, from the On The Verge podcast, a podcast dedicated specifically to Orioles prospects. We talk about Orioles prospects on this podcast, Brendan, but nobody has the in-depth coverage on a day-in and day-out basis like on The Verge. Bob, thanks so much for hopping on.
2: Oh, I appreciate you having me so much. And it's funny that you say that. It's it's definitely fun to follow minor leagues right now, especially what's going on with the major league team. And we lost our minds when Mike Elias retweeted us and said, give these guys a follow. They're great so that was pretty cool. And yeah, it's just, it's a fun place to be right now.
0: Absolutely. So we spent most of the, the podcast talking about pitching prospects. For you, as somebody who has in-depth knowledge of the system as well, what would you say to somebody who says that the Orioles don't have enough pitching prospects in their farm system right now to be able to compete in a few years?
2: I would say, first of all, I, I disagree in general <laughs> that we don't have enough Uh, pitching prospect depth, because if you look across baseball, we're no different than any other team. We have two top 100 uh, prospects that are pitchers. And actually, one of them is the best pitching prospect in baseball. The other one is one of the best left-handed pitching prospects in baseball. And the only team that has more than two in the top 100 is the Miami Marlins with four so I think we're doing okay there. And I think there's a lot of pitchers that are working their way up. Maybe at the top end, the Dean Kramers, the guys we know have been disappointing. But there's plenty of guys at AAA, A, AA, all the way down to low A that have had great seasons and made some leaps. And there's only five spots in a starting rotation. Let's just hope, you know, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, John Means, Phil. three of those. And then you got all you need is one of Kyle Bradish, Michael Bauman, Drew Rahm. The list goes on to hit. The rest could be quality relievers. That's valuable, too. You can also acquire talent in other ways. You could sign free agents. You can trade from your depth for established pitchers. So I, I would disagree with that segment So, Bob, to
1: stick with the pitching here a little bit, we've heard a lot about guys like Mike Bauman, Kevin Smith, Kyle Bradish, like you mentioned, and then lower down the prospect rankings, there's also guys like Drew Rahm, like Garrett Stallings. What do you think of those guys in particular and is there maybe a pitcher a little bit lower down the prospect rankings that really has a chance to work their way up to be a significant starter at the major league level?
2: Yeah, I want to start there because there's a guy who started this season with the FCL It's Gene Pinto. He came across in the Jose Iglesias trade along with Garrett Stallings. And this kid is electric. I think he has been dominant since he started the season in FCL. He hasn't missed a beat moving up to low A Del Marva, And I think this guy could be the next top 100 type of pitching prospect in the system. I mean, he he tunnels his pitches really well with a mid 90s fastball, a great change up and a pretty nice breaking ball as well. I would definitely pay attention to him. I think he could be, uh, you know, an upper tier type of pitching prospect uh, to break through through that depth. But guys like Rom, I'm—he doesn't have the best stuff. Raw stuff. The velocity isn't what you would want to see from a starting pitching prospect. But he's getting results, and he's still just 21 years old. So clearly, he's doing something right. Um, I think he could, at the very least, be a nice left-handed reliever when he hits the major leagues. And guys like Kyle Bradish and Michael Bauman. They might not live up to mid-rotation potential, but these guys have excellent, excellent stuff that at the very least could be a high-leverage reliever type of high-90s fastball with a good breaking ball.
0: You mentioned a couple guys that uh, have started at the FCL, and I think that's been a great proving ground for guys that we have not got eyes on yet. A lot of guys that came over in trades over the past year and a half, really, and a lot of guys that were players to be named later in some of the major deals that Michael Elias has made over the past, 12 or 18 months some guys that we're actually getting to see right now isaac de leon michelle deson these guys that we've just seen their names in prospect lists but what kind of potential can those kind of lottery picks those very young middle infielder athletic type of players bring uh, to the orioles considering you know they may not be in the top 30 in the orioles prospect uh, rankings but they certainly have potential given their age and athletic tools
2: Absolutely, and this is one of the most exciting things for me this season because this is something Orioles fans have not seen ever. These international signings and guys that they were signed internationally and traded for uh, over the last few years, like Michelle Desson, you mentioned so many high upside, high ceiling guys. Yeah, I'm sure the majority of them will not even make it to double A, but the exciting thing is, like you said, it's a lottery ticket. You might hit on one, and that's where the Juan Sotos of the world come from. These guys, you get them young, you train them up in your own system from the very beginning, and it can work out pretty well. There's a lot. Yeah, I look at that box score every day, and it's just really exciting. It's guys like Steven Acevedo, um, Noelberth Romero, who was traded in Andrew Kashner deal. There's just so many now, and it, it's super exciting.
1: Now, another guy who stood out at the FCL was Kobe Mayo. He's just 19 years old, currently the 17th ranked prospect in the Orioles system according to MOB Pipeline. Just how high do you think his ceiling is?
2: The ceiling is super high on Mayo. I mean, this kid has tremendous raw power. John Mioli wrote a great piece about him on the Baltimore Sun uh, over this weekend. And yeah, his his arm is tremendous as well at third base. I think he's going to be able to stick there as long as he doesn't, you know, grow grow to like seven feet tall or something. But uh, he, he is going to hit, I think. I think he is one of the guys that might be itching for that top 100 level around this time next year.
0: Yeah, and and you guys come out with your own rankings as well of the Orioles farm system, and you had a midseason ranking, not just of the top 30, but the top 50, I believe, correct?
2: Yeah, it was pretty exciting to be able to do that. (laughs) There's been years in the past where you could probably limit it to a top 15, but yeah, even guys were left off our top 50 that I think could be contributors at some point.
0: Yeah, when you have a list of that size and you're doing your own list based on what you've seen and heard uh, with your eyes and from the scouts, Are there guys that you think that maybe the national perspective, the national media might be sleeping on that could be higher or should be higher in the Orioles uh, prospect lists?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's just a matter of they need to see it in production. But you see guys like J.D. Mundy, who was an undrafted free agent. He gets signed. He probably would have been drafted if it was a normal year, but he starts in Delmarva, rakes, earns a promotion to Aberdeen, doesn't slow down a beat. Now he's in Bowie. He's, he's nicked up. He hasn't played in double a yet, but he's a guy that I think could actually hold some value. A guy like Pinto, like I mentioned before. Yeah, they're definitely guys Zach Watson who has kind of brought the power out this year. So there's definitely guys that I think could raise themselves Toby Welk, I could just name them all day <laughs> long here, but uh, it doesn't mean they're going to it's all going to work out. But it's just nice to have options. The more depth you have, the more chances one of them will raise the level. So it's just a good thing. Raise the floor. Yeah.
1: Now, you recently spoke with Orioles director of player development, Matt Blood. What stood out to you the most about that conversation with him?
2: Raise the floor. That was his slogan. That's what I just said. And he said it a lot in that interview. Um, And I think he's right. And The guys in specific that he mentioned, like Joey Ortiz, who he, I hadn't heard this until he said it on our podcast, hit a ball 110 miles an hour or 112 miles an hour. I didn't know he had that kind of pop in him. He plays incredible defensive shortstop. Apparently he's already major league quality there. So if that bat develops at all, that's certainly a guy you can have, but it just sounds like they are really happy with the work they're putting in. I think they feel like they have a plan and it's working and they're going to continue to do it. And we'll see obviously results matter in the end but the process is there and that's very exciting
0: yeah my favorite part about that interview when he was talking about some of the off the field activities that they did during the shutdown and having a book club and getting to know these guys on a personal level because getting to know them at that level helps them develop them and instruct them as well so that the players know that they have their best interest At heart, I thought that was a fascinating little nugget, but uh, Bob, thanks so much for hopping on before we let you go. I mean, how much has the market for this type of podcast and this type of coverage exploded from the Orioles fan side? Because we know what's happening at the major league level, but it feels like you guys have justifiably so drawn a ton of attention for your coverage of the minor leagues. How much do you think Orioles fans are invested now in what's going on in the farm system?
2: It's been pretty tremendous, actually, very surprising on our end how much our interest has grown, especially because we started this podcast right before the pandemic hit, and there was no Miley Baseball for the first year plus of what we were doing, and then once the games actually started and people saw what we were going to be able to do as far as the Twitter account, putting highlights and really diving deep into the system, we've seen a lot of growth in the interest there and enough so that we even started the Patreon and there are people willing to pay us to put out even a little bit more content. So it's very exciting and uh, hopefully that continues. And eventually we can talk about the major league team too. And we won't, we won't avoid them too much.
0: Absolutely. So Bob, what's the, how can we find on the verge and how can we find your Twitter and social media?
2: You can find the podcast anywhere where podcasts are found. Just search up BSL on the verge. You can look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash on the verge. And I'm on Twitter at the Oriole report and the podcast Twitter, which is a great follow is on Twitter at BSL on the verge. Absolutely.
0: Bob Phelan. Thanks so much for hopping on. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate it so much guys. Thanks a lot. That just about does it for the mass and all access podcast. He's Brendan Mortensen at Brendan Morty on Twitter. I am at Paul Mancano on Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time.